The NFT gold rush has begun, and everyone's trying to figure out what the hell it is. And it's getting headlines because of the money involved. So, to cut through the PR pitches and BS around this topic, because let's face it, there's been a lot recently, I asked Addy Wagonecht, who's a respected contemporary artist and researcher, and has been involved in this space for quite a while to connect with us from her home in Vienna, Austria, and offer her thoughts on this new direction. I mean, is it a new direction? This will be the first in a series of episodes we'll do to discuss NFTs, and if they're gonna change anything for artists and the art community. First question, what exactly is an NFT? Okay, so when someone asked me the question, and I'm going to say the question in caps about what is an NFT specifically, I usually respond wanting to know why the person wants to know and what they're hoping to achieve by knowing that. In my opinion, NFTs and cryptocurrencies, kind of to give like a really brief background, I think especially in times of pandemics and uncertainty is sort of as much a sense about buying certainty or buying like a future promise than it is about buying any sort of asset like art or a house or whatever it is specifically. And I, I've been thinking a lot about kind of monetary systems and crypto systems as a monetary system, obviously, and sort of how we accept payment or we accept payments and we accept um, fiat, you know, like money is just printed, but we think it's because we're really like accepting we're accepting the notion of a tomorrow that someone else is also accepting. And so one of the reasons I'm seeing, like, from my perspective as an artist and a researcher is sort of that every transaction is a prediction on a blockchain. So when you think about it as sort of like a future telling or an affirmation, so to speak, I think it's easier to kind of understand what's going on at, at like a, a societal level, I'll say that. And so when people are designing new economic models, I think a lot of that has to do with kind of narrating the future and NFTs very much fall into the definition of value. So when everything is sort of perceived to be crumbling and there's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of people have started turning to cryptocurrency as sort of something to grab onto no matter how ethereal that is because it allows you to kind of be simultaneously hopeful for the future while remaining sort of pessimistic about the present. Um, so part of, part of what you're describing though, sounds almost like a faith system. There's an aspect of it where there's sort of this future kind of promise, right? That sort of like you will be delivered to. I mean, what's that connection there? I mean, because I know your own work often deals with some of these sort of like fissures in the culture and sort of like surveillance and drones and all these types of technology mm -hmm. aspects. So now how does this fit into that larger future? I mean, is it future utopianism? I mean, what is, how would you characterize this? So what's happening right now, I mean, just to answer what an NFT is before I get into like more hypothetical stuff is it, an NFT is basically a non-fungible token. Fungible is sort of a pseudonym for an asset. So um, it's non-divisible, meaning that it can represent almost anything that is physical and tangible. So a house, a piece of art. And right now, sort of the majority of those transactions are happening on a chain called Ethereum. So I can get into the blockchain kind of specificities if that's of interest to you. But um, the one sort of, yeah, YOLO, <laughs> why not? <laughs> um, so to... 
summarize this like the shortest way possible. Ethereum is, is a chain that is built off of a proof of work consensus model, which basically is like a fancy way of saying, how do we agree to store all of this information? Mm -hmm. And when you say work, it's mining is the form of work itself and not in the traditional sense of like people going into um, mines and mining for coal, but it's actually the act of using energy to add blocks and value to those blocks onto the chain. And I think that's important to recognize because it basically allows the chain link of the blockchain to um, be enlarged and it allows you to, how do you say? So like the more work that is done, the longer the chain and the higher the, the, the longer the chain, the higher the number of blocks, which means there's more like mathematical certainty on the way that the network can define and agree upon the state of things. And so that's the basis of kind of the NFT is right now Nifty and um, Super Rare and all these are sort of using a proof of work blockchain called Ethereum. And then there's this other class of layer ones, which Ethereum is layer one, Bitcoin is a layer one. And I like to think of layer ones as like the foundation of the house. And then there's the layer twos, which is like everything that is built upon that foundation. So you want to have a really secure foundation because it doesn't matter how amazing the house is. If the foundation sucks, like the house is going to fall apart. So there's proof of stake chains as well. And there are also layer ones. So think of the foundation. There's things like uh, Polkadot, Kusama, Algorand, there's a bunch coming out right now that are all these layer ones as well, aka the foundation. So if you think of blockchains like that, you can build those upon each other. But I think uh, from my point of view, like proof of stake is sort of the future. And I think a lot of people will agree with that, even in the NFT space, because it solves a lot of these sort of energy consumptions and questions around sort of the wastefulness or the perceived wastefulness of like the proof of work. Proof of stake has things like they're more energy efficient. You don't need to use a lot of energy to mine blocks that are done sometimes algorithmically or computationally. There's lower barriers to entry. Like you don't have to have these massive graphics cards and crazy kind of things to create blocks onto the chain. And then there's a strong immunity against centralization. So it prevents and circumvents things like, I don't know if you were aware of cryptocurrency kind of maybe 10 years ago, but there was this huge like um, hack on one of the exchanges and there was like billions of dollars lost and that's happened a few times and I think that leads to sort of the distrust of it. So yeah, that's the shortest answer I can try to give in a way that I think people might understand it at like a fundamental level. Yeah, definitely. Did you mention one of them is going to be called Kusama? Yeah, so Kusama is one that is, it's actually a parachain of Polkadot. So Polkadot is a primary chain mm -hmm. and Kusama is like one of the children of Polkadot, but it's built on the same um, structure and chain system. So yeah, it's it's obviously a node to the artist and the idea that um, I think their slogan is expect chaos. And they're actually doing an NFT palette, which I helped work on last year. So there's a lot of artists and sort of cyberpunk like net artists who have been launching on there. So now what is the governmental connection to this at all? Because usually we're dealing with currencies, of course, that are regulated, you know, mm -hmm. governments. Now, where is that in this equation? So it depends if you're talking about um, governance of the chain itself, or if you mean from like a legislative jurisdiction, a jurisdictional point of view. Well, I mean, either, because I think it's to sort of understand what they both mean in this case. So um, one of the big, in my opinion, and I'm not a financial advisor or a financial consultant, obviously, but 
one of my big um, kind of takeaways from cryptocurrency is that the value of decentralization is that it can't be treated like a commodity on the market. So for example, silver, gold, how those things are taxed, how those things are tracked. If it's fully decentralized, which a lot of the chains are working on, meaning that it's not contained in a central space, but there's multiple nodes and people that are running it all over the world, you can't regulate that easily and you can't define it as a commodity because it's so um, dissipated everywhere. And so so there's that physical aspect of a, like literally physical in terms of governments and jurisdictions. And, and we saw recently with Ripple, which was a chain that went under um, scrutiny with the SEC in the US because they were considered too centralized. So a lot of chains have been ensuring that by bringing things on like consensus or on-chain governance mechanisms, it essentially brings the power of what's happening on the chain to the community and I say community in terms of the sense of like who's on the chain already, because I think that's kind of a misnomer personally, but it's people that are already active in the, let's say in Polkadot, for example, to then participate in what that chain does, what kind of projects it supports, you know, how does it fork, if it forks, like all these sort of fundamental technical questions, but also it has repercussions in terms of like what's built out in those systems. So for example, with Kusama, building out the NFT palette so that artists could start putting NFTs on a proof of stake chain was voted on by uh, people that were within that community. And they wanted to see that happen and they wanted to support that uh, technical development. So they basically allowed like a certain amount of that coins value to go towards that agenda item. So now when it comes to the actual, you also talked about the POW chain versus the POS mm-hmm. chain. Do you want to explain yep. what that is for people? Yeah, so proof of work is chains like Ethereum and Bitcoin, for example, and they work primarily using mining mechanisms. So they're, again, using electricity and things to essentially mine the next block, um, and they're using computational power, which obviously is extremely unenvironmentally friendly. It's very much a large kind of use of a natural resource in a way, and, and people are very hesitant towards that. But that's the way that they build out that chain or those chains, I should say. Proof of stake is something that's done through consensus algorithms on chain so that it's done in a way that doesn't require large amounts of resources, but is done within like the code, essentially, and within um, building out that sort of mechanisms, I guess. So is one better than the other? I mean, that depends what your objectives are. It's like my questions always when people say they want to get into crypto, it's like I ask them, well, what is it that you're interested in? Is it that you're interested in investment? Are you interested in stability? Are you wanting to buy NFTs, for example? Um, And I try to evaluate like each use case specifically. Um, Again, not as a financial advisor, but as a creative. a good question. Do you feel like a financial advisor when people come to ask you these questions? Because I mean, I think the underlying question is, how do I make money off of this? Yeah. Right? Yeah. So are you feeling increasingly this is what the conversation is turning to? Because I think there's like a, um, especially with, you know, recently we interviewed someone at an auction house and I, Mm -hmm. I, about this topic. And what's amazing to me is there's like this ideology that clearly is about like, you know, just uh, the assumption that this is about just monetizing, just that's as there's no conversation about equity, equality, any of these things. It's just like, we found another space. How do we, I mean, mine it, um, you know, using it in the other 
term, maybe not in the crypto term, but like, you know, how do we mine it for more stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And more money. And, you know, people talk about making all this money. Now, how do you approach that? Um, I think, I mean, there's always, uh, what's the saying? It's, there's always your story, the other person's story, and then the truth. And so I see sort of that there's not necessarily a correct answer to that question. Um, some people obviously are in it to be rich. Some people are in it because they don't trust centralized banks and they want to have control of their money on um, cold storage, which is like when you take the coins off of the networks or the exchanges and you store them on a encrypted hard drive, for example, or a thumb drive. Some people want to have, you know, community. The thing about NFTs and sort of that industry is that it's being built up and controlled by very much like the same white walled, like white people who are privileged. And it's already, I see this sort of walled garden effect happening already. And, and sort of, it's making people very rich, obviously, but it's making a small percentage of people very rich. And it's combined and aligning with sort of the failure in the sense of traditional art institutions right now, in the sense that in much of the world, you can't visit them. Even if you want to, you can visit them under severe restrictions or with some case galleries, like they're just not even doing shows anymore and fairs are canceled or like our bosses, you know, theoretically in September, but who knows if that's happening. And so it's sort of driving both for maybe the first time in my life, it's driving commercially viable artists and it's in driving kind of net artists and people who are generally interested in kind of creative output to consider these more like wild and risky gestures. And as an artist and sort of someone who's done a lot of activism over my lifetime, I think it's really hard and important, difficult sort of invisible labor to rethink the plumbing of why artists failing people and why tech is falling, you know, failing people and society is not nearly kind of as interested in like that because it's not as attention grabbing as like, okay, this guy is selling his gift for a million dollars. And I'm not super convinced that everyone isn't just in it for the names and the holes and the cash out. But I do think that there are opportunities for artists to engage without permission. There's spaces like uh, OpenSea is one where you don't necessarily have to have a curatorial like point of entrance. You don't need to apply for anything. You don't need to like get an invite, anyone in the world sort of like in principle, can you use that and access it? So in, in terms of the notion of like disruption of the white walled spaces, you have kind of a somewhat equal, I would say you have a more equal playing field there. Mm. And sort of the beauty of like the NFT space, as much as I, I have kind of an inner conflict about it, I think is that the sense that you can kind of run with it and that there is, there's not this like algorithmically determined output, meaning that everyone who goes there sees like the same results. So what's your inner conflict about NFTs? (laughs) Um, I think with my concern with NFTs platforms specifically, like for example, Nifty, is that they mimic so much of, of what's happening already and sort of the real, the real art world, but it's just like mitigated online. So it's still like, the majority of the top artists are still male. They're still white. They're still giving this perspective to the outside that like everyone can make a ton of money, but it's still the sort of small group of people that are continually cashing out. I mean, I don't have a problem with good curation, obviously. I think good curation can define a space and a context beyond like what anyone else can see possible. But I think there are, I think there's definitely reasons to be apprehensive. And for me, like 
an environmental issue is definitely the high energy expenditure from proof of work, which is like what Ethereum is, which is what the majority of these platforms is built on. Mm-hmm. And kind of the the other issue of like high gas fees, which is what you pay when you put that work out or you buy it, is describing exactly the same problem of like this complexity of decentralization of wealth, you know, wealth allocation and sort of limited resources and energy. So that's sort of my I'm still trying to figure it out, to be honest. I've seen a lot of artists who are boycotting crypto art, but I don't know if that's necessarily the solution either. I looked at the memo, did a really interesting project. I don't know if you saw it on Twitter, where he was looking at like the CO2 output of, I believe it was Nifty Artists. And I don't know why we've all decided Nifty, but it's run by the the Winkelbrass brothers, which was like the kind of co-founders of Facebook. So there's just all sorts of like loaded history there. But he did this like overview, really interesting analysis of sort of the CO2 expenditures of what each artist's output was, um, who had sold well. And it was it was pretty depressing. But when you also look at like the total share of CO2 emissions from crypto art, it's sort of trivial when you compare it to things like the financial sector or gold mining or mineral mining. And sort of it feels a lot like we're looking at the same solutions, but like with different metrics, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it part of it is, though, obviously, this is a, a growing industry. So I, I think the concern is the energy consumption is going to spiral out of control. Now, do you yeah. see that as a legitimate concern? Um, my belief is that there's enough artists and collectors who are raising kind of this red flag and awareness around the issues of chains like Ethereum. And they're saying, I don't want to really valid important work and they're saying we don't want to we don't want to put this out because we don't want to we don't want to support this sort of agenda and we don't want to support a proof of work and mining and all these sort of things that we feel are fundamentally wrong but what is happening right now is chains are other chains not ether necessarily but they do claim to be moving to a proof of stake network which is again like the more environmentally friendly solution i think a lot of platforms are hesitant to transition all of our technology to a new chain but what's going to happen is all the artists and the collectors and the viable you know anything that's viable within those communities is going to migrate and then that's going to force the platforms obviously to adjust because they won't have that community and if the values in the community then their priorities i think will change (laughs) all right hope so anyways (laughs) right hopefully in the conversation we had preparing for this used a term in relation to nfts i never thought about or i'm not even quite sure what it is which is forks how forks will affect them in the future. What do you mean by the use of that term and what are going to be the impacts on NFTs? So a fork is basically literally what you would, it's a fork. Like you have each, you know, I don't know what you want to call these arms legs (laughs) of a fork. So you have like the primary uh, chain. And then what happens is, is at some point, through either the on-chain governance, which I was talking about earlier, or through other mechanisms, like if it's centralized through maybe a pseudo function on-chain, basically means that like you have the primary chain, which is the palm of my hand, and then Ethereum's gonna say, okay, we're forking, and then they're gonna make a new, a new, like I think they're calling it ETH2 or Ethereum2. And so they're gonna basically set up this Ethereum like proof of stake network and so it will use like validators which basically don't need 
And validators are just a fancy word for people who have computers in other places other than like the main space. Mm -hmm. So they'll use validators to basically alleviate the need of mining, but they'll use computational power. So it's like selected at random versus being like a centralized mechanism like proof of work is, if that makes sense. And so when that happens, it will allow like the current global warming, like pandas are dying and all of the icebergs are melting to then go into this more kind of environmentally friendly solution, which will then support everything that was lower down. So it's sort of like another level that's going to be added. And when we say fork, just for people listening, it's like a fork in the road where it sort of diverges. Yeah, it's like a fork in the road. Right, exactly. Just so that people understand. So now, how is this impacting your own work? What have you decided to do? What paths have you decided to take with this? And also last year, you, you know, thought of ways that your sales could support organizations and activism. So let's talk a little mm -hmm. bit about that. Because I think, you know, I think there's a lot of opportunity here, but obviously people have to make decisions and it would be great to, for people to understand that it's just not one way of doing things. So last year when COVID hit, I went from having probably 30 exhibitions and two or three artist talks and all of these great opportunities that I was very lucky and privileged to have in front of me all canceled within 48 hours or they were postponed sort of indefinitely. Uh, so I was very much forced to reevaluate what my models of survival and practice would look like. And then about a few weeks after kind of the initial COVID shutdown, there was George Floyd's murder and there was this raising awareness of Black Lives Matter and sort of all of these movements that I'd been working really heavily in the last few years became sort of part of the mainstream like narrative and consciousness. And I really fought with the idea of is art necessary or why do we have art if it's all 90% of it is sort of vaulted away in storage. And, and that's a parallel I see very much with NFTs. It's like, there's tons of people buying them, but then what's happening to them? They're all being put in these like virtual wallets and they're hidden away. So I started doing print sales in the sense that I would have people send me receipts for over $200 or $500, whatever they had the ability to donate to different causes, ACLU, Black Lives Matter, trans rights activism, even some gave me some animal welfare donation receipts. And so I would send out works in exchange for these donations, a way to sort of find a way to use art in a very literal, very proactive way in which I knew that it was directly contributing to causes which I cared about, but I didn't necessarily have the ability to financially support myself. And so the question was very... I don't know if you've ever read this Sick Girl article, but the question was very much about how do you, what do you do when you can't leave your house, you can't leave your bed, you're responsible for other people. Like, how do you, you know, how do you protest? And so for me, that became my mode of protest. And my, my shows that weren't canceled, I said, if these aren't going to be canceled, the only way I'm, I'm continuing with these exhibitions and sales is if you agree to these terms. Like, I want the, I want the proceeds to go to these, these organizations or an organization of your choice, and I don't, I don't want to see the money. I really felt frustrated that I couldn't help and I couldn't be on the streets. It's my way of sort of processing it and dealing with it in a way sort of becoming part of my practice and, and seeing then other artists pick that up and other foundations pick that up and sort of rolling with that idea was really um, exciting for me and really fed me for quite a few months was seeing that, okay, you know, artists can do something other than just make something pretty and put it on someone's wall because that was something I was really 
fighting internally with myself about was like, is this the best use of my time? If I want to actually help other people or I want to help animals or I want to help immigrants and refugees, like how do I do this? And how do I do it in a way that's not just passive, but like very actively. So that was sort of something I started um, doing last year. And then I've sort of also moved on to sort of more online kind of ethereal experiences and doing in the sense of as much as the internet can be online, kind of online performance works and works that can be visited by people who are outside of metropolitan areas. And so I've started kind of looking at the constraints of COVID as not a residency, but a way to sort of experience the world with the constraints that were given, I guess. So did anybody give you any pushback? I mean, because you're you're introducing complexity into the system, right? You know, and I, I can only imagine that a lot of these you know, galleries, museums, don't always welcome complexity. Have <laughs> you ever sort of gotten pushback or how you negotiate that and how much of it is sort of upfront and just like, hey, if you even want to talk to me, this is what you need to do? I'd say it's both. I've had people propose doing solo exhibitions at galleries and I've said, for example, there was one a year and a half ago at a gallery in a, a really prominent city and I said, I want to make work that's critical of the US and I want to make work that's critical of the president at the time that we had and I was very angry and I wanted to show that I disagreed with this and not that there was any compliancy that I had towards those sort of ideologies and the gallerist was just said I don't want to do this I want to show you know um, your Eve's Klein work or I want to do something that I don't want to show anything political and it was like and I said, okay, I'm not doing this show. Like, I just don't want to do it. Cancel it. And I said, I'm sorry, I'm not doing it. <laughs> like, I don't know what else to say. So that was sort of the first indication of pushback I've received maybe recently. And then kind of over, that was like the last, yeah, I would say that was the last pushback I had pre-pandemic. And then since the pandemic, there's been some people who have been uncomfortable or unhappy with me wanting, you know, my sales donated with certain galleries and shows that I've had. And I've always said to them, you don't have to donate your percentage, but like my percentage needs to be donated. And that needs to be, I was very upfront about it. I was like, you know, I said, I would like this to all be donated, but if you're not in a place to financially do such, then I'm going to at least donate my sales. And that needs to be something that you're comfortable with as well. And it's up to me where it's going or it's up to the person buying it. You know, I'm going to give them options, but really ultimately, like I want that money to be applied to the literal front lines. <laughs> So now how about, how have you actually used NFTs in your work? So I've done some development of them. I mean, part of the pandemic was I, I took on a day job so I could feed my family and pay rent and do these sort of unglamorous things. Um, but I haven't done them myself because I've not necessarily found the right opportunity or the right space in which I felt that the conditions in which I wanted to have the work sold would be met. I'm not super happy with the proof of work blockchains and the majority of the applications which are using them. So for me, it was really, you know, how do you, how do you come to terms with that? And I, I haven't honestly, so I've just sort of not in a way, and I'm waiting for a larger platform to take on a proof of stake network before I really go full into it as a kind of system, I guess you could say. <laughs> So when you say you weren't happy with the proof of work chains, do you mean that you weren't happy with the sort of the ethical way they were established, the energy they're using, the different criteria? Like what were you unhappy with? Part of it's the environmental impact. And part of it is that the way that things are being 
gay kept and ran are very heteronormative, like white privileged male. And I have a problem with that. Like I want to support a network and a platform and a community that's built in inclusiveness as much as that can be possible on the internet and sort of waiting for that opportunity. I mean, Kusama, I think is the closest that I've come. I know Algren, for example, is building out, Algren, for example, is building out a really interesting NFT system and platform right now where they're going to have, you know, a trans queer, like woman of color who's, who's going to be running the, the majority of it. So I think something like that will be really like where the sea change starts to happen and seeing more people who have the opportunities who aren't just like the same handful again of people that we're seeing right now. <laughs> so now when, when a auction house like Christie's gets involved, does like part of your stomach sink? I mean, like, do, you know, what, what, what's the feeling you get from like seeing this? Because I mean, I have to say they've made it almost seem very vanilla. You know, they've made yeah. it very like, you're just, you know, you're just buying this thing and, you know, and it's sort of like, isn't it great and nifty and all this sort of stuff. <laughs> Um, sorry, sorry, not not to uh, use nifty, and <laughs> but uh, you know. So, what wh what does that suggest to you? Like, does it suggest anything? Christie's is very opportunistic in the sense that they also did this with when machine learning was really taking off. They they had a few machine learning pieces that they showcased, and they made a big deal about being the first, as if there hadn't been a lot of prior art to that. Um, so I guess for me, it's very much sort of like, okay, yeah, of course it's going to be like, of course it's Christie's doing this. Like who else is going to do it? Christie's is always the, one, <laughs> the ones who are kind of on the front lines of trying to be innovative, but also, as you said, like very vanilla. So I guess it was expected. I mean, I don't know who else would do it. I would have been more shocked if it had been Phillips, honestly, or someone who had less of a sort of knee jerk reaction to whatever it was that was trending. So now let's get back to the question that I brought up initially, which was like, in some ways, this sounds like a faith system people are, are buying into, right? You know, it's sort of like, or becoming part of, because there's this idea of this future, you know, where this sort of value, and I mean, I don't think I have to explain in terms of like, you know, this sort of the future promise is often what faith systems are based on, right? You know, so... What, what, you know, as someone who works in this space and has been working in this space for quite a while, how do you resolve that? Because part of it does feel like it kind of veers off into this kind of philosophical faith system thing going on. While at the same time, you know, obviously these, this impacts people's lives. So how do you balance that? And what are your thoughts on that? I mean, that's a really difficult question. I'm not sure that I have found a balance and I'm not sure that I have really come to terms with like what the revolution, you know, what the, what the solution or the resolution is. I've seen a lot of kind of main war aesthetics and attitudes when I've listened to some of the primary top sellers. I don't know if you've had the opportunity to listen into on their conversations, but they're very uh, crypto bro. They're very anti-incident. Like in a way it's like, there's a new energy coming in, but it's, again, it's like always coming back to the same people and it's the same kind of, it's a new energy, but it's the same person, if that makes sense. It's always this white guy who disregards people who's highly narcissistic. And he's like the one who of course is making the most money in the situation. 
just as I think that happens quite frequently in the in the real world art, art world. So that's been really frustrating for me is sort of thinking people are disrupting systems or so they're claiming, but they're really just recreating the same system in like a virtual space. I mean, sometimes it feels like they're sort of running away from the reform we're trying to do in the established system and sort yeah. of doing the Wild West kind of version of what they think they're entitled to. You know, I think that that often kind of gets reproduced that way as well. So now for you, I mean, I'm, I'm curious because I know your work is also very engaged with different, you know, feminisms. And is this a space with the potential for the for like feminist thinking? I mean, you talked about that one chain that is might be led by, a, a you know, a woman of color, a, a trans woman of color, and whether, you know, that could be potential. But have you been seeing any other interesting sort of things going on in that? There's definitely a group of women who are in the crypto space who have an awareness that the future is being defined and that we have a responsibility to truly disrupt what is happening and that if we don't do it, it will go on as every other technological innovation has happened. It's always, so that's something that I think is becoming part of sort of a larger consciousness among women and trans people and a lot of my gay friends who are working on on these changes like you know the joke is like oh great they hired another white guy and so it's about disrupting that and finding people specifically to take these positions and in roles of powers and and shaping the culture of these chains that aren't that kind of cookie cutter that that it has been for the last you know 15 years of blockchain and so that's something that I believe myself and other people in the space are actively starting to disrupt and we have an awareness that it's a problem and we're trying to infiltrate it from the inside as much as possible um, in every way possible. So I've been hiring, I just hired a few women into the, the space. I'm looking for BIPOC people. I'm looking for people who are outside of the Europe and America and specifically in the diaspora. I started um, trying to hire people to, that are doing really interesting projects but haven't necessarily had the exposure because they don't speak German or they're, you know, they're not in Silicon Valley. And they're so trying to find these people that need those opportunities and are looking for them and deserve them but haven't received that exposure is something that there's a few of us who are definitely very actively and starting to sort of, I want to say, aggressively search that out. But Addy, it sounds like you're almost taking on a whole uh, other unpaid job. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is, I guess, where like the system, it, it makes me wonder, like, we're building these systems, and some of us are working to reform them, but it ends up becoming like you just take on another job and, uh, that's unpaid. So, and I, I can't imagine, you know, it's like, for people who have no problem with the system, they're just doing their thing, right? You know, they're just typing away and, and coding away and doing all their thing. But, you know, you, you've taken on this thing. You've taken on this. I mean, it's frankly, it's massive, right? You're dealing with this <laughs> massive system. So are you getting any support? Or do you feel, I mean, I know that your colleagues might be, but structurally, what could be done to create those support systems? I think finding like-minded people is very important. And sort of my friends always say, you know, it's not, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. And sort of finding time to support each other with self-care and checking in with each other. There's a curator in California and they work at a foundation and, and they just wrote me a text yesterday saying, you know, how are you? We haven't talked since November. Like I'm checking in. Are you taking showers? <laughs> and 
And I wrote back, yeah, of course, like, I can't wait to see you. It's just, you know, these little like gestures of care, I think are really important right now. And sort of finding people that have that awareness outside of themselves is important. I mean, in terms of me, I'm getting paid well because I have a job right now in crypto and I'm, I have a huge fund that's more money than I could ever imagine to fund projects and to create these ecosystems. So in a way I feel supported financially. I have a network of like-minded people who are also wanting to, you know, kind of change it from the inside or from at least a, a near distance as much as we can. And uh, finding people who, you know, I think you can help and then they in turn help other people. Phoenix Perry has always said like, for every person helps you help too. So I'm always trying to find those people, like find the helpers and help them. And then they help, you know, someone else. And so sort of engaging with um, this larger network of people who have an awareness of what needs to be changed and why, and not being afraid to do it is really a key to sort of survival right now. Good point. So now how about institutions? Like have institutions been taking on NFTs? Have they been collecting them? And also what could things like museums or colleges do to make this a more equitable space? Mm -hmm. To my knowledge, I don't know of any institutions or museums that have taken on NFTs. I would love to know if that is the case. One of the discussions that I've heard quite a lot from curators and collectors is sort of, well, how do you maintain these? Like, is there a maintenance contract? What happens if the screen that it's presented on breaks? Like, do I know how to fix that? Can I fix it? Is it, you know, is it a GIF? And how do I maintain a GIF? And sort of those questions around um, digital work and technologically based work that I think a lot of artists have always dealt with um, with their galleries or with museums and institutional collections is now sort of starting to come into the conversation with NFTs, but I'm curious to know from collectors of commercially, how do you say this commercially, um, traditional commercial art, if they're collecting, most of the people I've spoken to, they'll say, oh, I'm buying it because it's funny or I just wanna have one so I can say that I have one, but there's not there's not necessarily this awareness or, or care that is involved in traditional media arts that I've seen yet to, to my experience. But it would be a really good question to know, for example, how they're how they're thinking about approaching this or if they're taking it seriously and sort of that would, that's a discussion I would love to have with, with one of the museums or institutions. Can you see anything they could potentially do to sort of like offset a little bit of this bro culture that seems to be, um, you know, so part of this field? Mm -hmm. um, I think commissioning artists who part of it. Part of it's interesting because there's this attitude of an expectation with some artists I've spoken to who said, I don't know how to do it, like help me, or what do I do? Can I do this? Do I need an invitation? Like, can I just put it out there? I don't understand the technology. So probably having, if galleries had teams of people that could help the artists kind of walk through, you know, how to do this, um, why you should do it, what the ways are to do it, sort of the different options you have. That would make a lot of money and it would probably make a big impact in creating sort of maybe an ecology of care around people that want to come into this space but don't necessarily feel that they have the permission or feel that they have the knowledge because because nobody who came into this space, myself included, had the knowledge. It's something that I learned out of necessity. But um, to find people that are you know willing to show you that or walk you through that or explain to you how to do that, I mean, why... 
applications or platforms like Nifty have been so successful is because they don't require you to have understanding of, of how you implement this on chain. It's all front end. So it's like almost the equivalent of using a WordPress or Instagram. You know, you upload it, you mint it, you put in your you know description and you, you press post or whatever. And so there's a very easy to navigate front end regardless of sort of technical competency or blockchain competency that I think is why those things have exploded so much combined with sort of everyone being locked up at home and trying to find creative outlets and, and money possibly for a lot of artists who are unemployed or don't have, you know, other sources of income. And so it's sort of been the perfect storm in that way. So now do you think overall this gives artists more power or is this, is this not a game changer in terms of that? I'm not sure yet. Uh, I want to believe that it disrupts the current structures and the systems and sort of this hyper focus on spaces and the importance of metropolitan areas and allowing sort of, like I said earlier, in theory, anyone to mint an NFT. But I'm also not convinced yet that it's not just a replication of what already exists out there and sort of waiting to see that evolve because it's been, I mean, NFTs have been around for a long time. It's just that now it's finally catching up speed. So finding, I guess I'm kind of waiting and hoping. And in the meantime, I'm trying to find people who are willing to sort of disrupt the space in an actual disruption sense and not just in like the buzzword sense. Got it. So now I've been hearing a lot of sort of potential but do you see any serious drawbacks to the system? Like I haven't to heard- To NFTs. Yeah, NFTs in general in this, how these are sort of impacting production and cultural production and artists in their lives. I mean, the obvious one is that it's definitely, again, cutting out anyone in diasporas and in spaces that don't have extremely fast internet and decent computers or computational like devices. So when you're using di- diasporas, what do you mean by, by your use of that term for people who mean? Um, I'm talking about areas in which are conflict zones or disputed territories. I'm talking about um, areas in Africa and South America or Latin America that are, you know, kind of in the non-metropolitan areas. So they may not have the infrastructure of like, for example, Lagos or something, but they're further out where, you know, there's constant electricity cuts, there's constant lack of power or running water and sort of the access to, I think, the fundamental the fundamental tools of building FTs might be available, but they're extremely limited in their availability. So they might have to walk, you know, to a school or somewhere to use it. I um, was in Mozambique a few years ago and I talked to a few students there who I'd met and they said, you know, there's, they have one cell phone. It was a, it was a little Nokia, like text phone. They had really good um, cell phone service, but almost nobody had a smartphone. And then they had a computer, but it was at school and the school was like a few miles away. So it's just, it limits like those tools. And I, and NFTs, unfortunately right now are majority tool dependent. So if you don't have access to those tools, you're not going to be able to create, you know, an NFT. It's just the way it is. Okay. So now one last thing. I would love mm-hmm. to sort of just walk through the steps. Let's say an artist is listening to this right now and they want an NFT. Now, mm-hmm. do you want to walk us through what is the process? Like, how do you do? So let's say I just made a GIF, hypothetically. Mm-hmm. I made a GIF mm-hmm. of, of something. What do I mm-hmm. do next? So you would have to choose a platform. There's Nifty, Super Rare, and Foundation, which I believe all 
you can apply to be an artist, but you don't necessarily have um, like immediate rights or not rights, but you don't have immediate like access to the platform to post the work. It has to be curate. It has to be curatorially put in, or it has to be you know you have to be basically invited by invitation. And then there's spaces like OpenSea where you don't necessarily have to apply for anything, and it can be done like in real time. You can just put it up there, and it's done. So the way that um, in, when I've looked at both most of the platforms that I've just referenced, the way that it works is you can upload an audio, or no, I'm sorry, not all of them will support audio, but you can upload a video GIF file, or you can upload an image, like a static image, like a JPEG, for example. So you would press an upload button. Um, it would upload the image. You can then enter information like a title, um, a brief description, some of them allow you to do addition. So you can say like addition of 10, addition of one, and then it, you can set a reserve price. So in a reserve price, you would say, uh, say you wanna make a reserve price of one Ethereum coin. So token and ERS 20, that would be, I haven't looked at it today, but let's say it was like, it's 1,500 last time I checked. So it's 1,500, you'd have to put money uh, fiat, so actual USD, if you're in the States, onto something called MetaMask, which is basically a Chrome extension that you install that you can then put money onto using your credit card or I think a bank wire, or you can transfer from another Ethereum wallet. But let's say you do it with a credit card. So you'd put, um, you need to put enough money on there to cover your gas fees. So let's say the gas fee is $100 that day or $150. It varies from time of day. It varies on weekends. So you can constantly check and see when it's the cheapest. But let's say it's $100 a day. So you'll put $100 on your MetaMask. You'll go back to the platform. You'll say Mint NFT. Then it will access the MetaMask, which is just, again, just a little pop-up window that comes out of your browser. It's It sounds scary, but it's not. <laughs> and you'll say Mint. And then it will take a few seconds. And it will it will basically then publish that onto the Ethereum blockchain. And from there, it will say confirmation and it will show you all the information that you've put in. And then you can say publish. And then it will go on to sort of that ecosystem of, of NFT sales. And I think most of their sales are 24-hour auctions. So you can say if your reserve price was a euro, uh, sorry, a euro, <laughs> one Ether, uh, then it might go up to 100 Ether, it might stay at an Ether, it might not sell at all, but then you have this kind of experience of it. The downside is you, you're out of 100 bucks, whether it sells or not. The upside is you possibly can make, you know, bazillions of dollars. So it's sort of very much like a lot of art in that you're playing the lottery um, when it goes out. <laughs> so like you said, some things don't change. Yes, yeah, some things don't change. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. This was a great introduction for people from an expert who clearly has been following this for quite a while. Uh, I wonder if there's any last things you'd like to share that people may not be aware of that you think, uh, whether it's, you know, just to sort of help educate themselves or also just things to look out for. Because I imagine with these sort of, you know, different platforms and new ways of making money, there are going to be people taking advantage of people as well. Seen anything that you can sort of give people a heads up about? Yeah, that's a really good question. I would say um, look for people in the ecosystem and space who are interested and able to help you either from a friend or a peer or someone that you trust so that you're not necessarily going into it blind. Maintain a sense of humor 
be open to possibility and also be open to failure. Um, also, I, I have, I'm constantly online. So if I'm awake, I try to be active and checking my DMs or, you know, ads on Twitter and Instagram and so on and so forth. So feel free to reach out to me and I will do my best to support you and help connect you with other people who are in the ecosystem. And you're on Twitter, you're where at where's Addy. So just for people. Yeah, where's Addy? And I'll put that in the in the notes to this episode too. So thank you so much. Appreciate your time and for helping guide us through this through this new uh, sea of possibilities. Yeah, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate you taking the risk and opportunity to speak to me about this. I'm Hirag Vartanyan, editor-in-chief and co-founder of Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening and stay safe. Oh, and get vaccinated too, please.